following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We come to God's Word and we say little nuances. I've said it many, many times, but it's an important nuance that we speak and we say that this is the Word of the Lord. That this is God's Word. It isn't contain God's Word and contain non-God words, but it is the Word of the Lord. And we come to it with great reverence. We come to it knowing that it is what shapes us and guides us and gives us a hope within this life. And we come to this word, and as I hear it read, it reminds me of literally of the day I had yesterday, a day uh, that was bookended uh, with a funeral and with a wedding. And the funeral of Bob Steinmeier, one of our faithful members, a former a uh, ruling elder within our denomination, Bob, who some of you would remember, would come and dramatically read the scripture for us up here on Sunday mornings. But he went to be with the Lord last week, and I thought with even some hint of jealousy that he is now seeing face to face the word that he believed so well, that he no longer has to have faith, that it's real to him in a, more, in a way that we long for and that we look forward to. And then last night at a wedding, again reading God's Word and understanding and reading in 1 Corinthians 13 of love and of saying, it's okay, uh, the world says uh, that you want to have all these moral qualities. And Paul came back and he said, yes, you can have all these moral qualities. You can give your body to be burned. You can give all your stuff away. You can do all this. But if you have not love, I'm like a clashing gong or a symbol. I don't have anything if I don't have love. If I don't have at its very heart love. And John and Peter, I imagine when they were together, the apostle Peter, the apostle John, Paul, if he was around and hung out together with them at all, most likely their conversations would have come back to the essence of what does it mean to be loved by God and to love others. To take the greatest and first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to thus then love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul uh, so eloquently said it in 1 Corinthians 13, and John picked up on that theme of love of the one who was known as the beloved one, the one who was cared for intimately and deeply by Christ in such a way. And we move through now this section of First Peter. We're into chapter 4. In chapter 4, if somebody was to ask you and said, what's the love chapter within the Bible? You would most likely go to 1 Corinthians 13, but I'd encourage you to check out 1 John 4. John begins this sort of landslide with some momentum at the end of chapter 3 where he uses the word agape seven times. And then he picks up in verse 7 of chapter 4. And from verse 7 to the end of chapter 4, he uses the word agape or a derivative of that word agape 29 times. John is saying, I want you to understand something about love. Repetition is important to him. He's saying, I want you to get this. I want you to understand love. I want you to understand the very essence of the Christian faith is love. And not love how it's understood within the world. Not love as it was understood in the Greco-Roman world of his time. And not love that is understood within our postmodern world of today. But biblical love. Christ-mandated love. Christ-explained love. Christ-exampled love. That's what we're talking about. 
And the key verse within here is chapter 4, verse 11. And in that is also the outline for uh, this sermon today. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I am indebted and truly indebted for most of this outline uh, from the pastor and theologian Douglas Sean O'Donnell, who wrote on this passage and in my preparations and studies, I thought, He's done an excellent job, and I'll use his outline and flesh out some things on it. And so I want to give credit where credit is due uh, on that. I'm very appreciative of these pastors and theologians who are pastors and theologians to me. This is where I am enriched each week as I study. And so the first thing that we see is going to be uh, a wonderfully non-Presbyterian outline. It's two parts. But under every part, there's several parts. So I'm going to get my full outline in there somehow. But we are loved, the first point. We are loved. The second main point, we love others. So under the first point, we are loved. First, understand this. Understand who you are, that you are the beloved one. That's what he begins with here. Uh, beloved, beloved And then down in verse 11, beloved, it's an indicative. Remember, we always talk about the indicative. Understanding the statement about you, what has transpired towards you and in you of who you are. And John is saying you are beloved. You are the object of God's affection. You are the object of God's love. You are the object of his delight. You are beloved. That's who you are. You may not feel that way every day when you wake up, but the reality is this. Quit listening to your emotions and being driven by your emotions and preach to your heart and your emotions more. Say, I know I don't feel love today, but I go back to the Bible and John called me beloved. That means my Father in heaven, he loves me. That I am beloved by him. I may be hated by every other person in the entire world. But as long as I know that I'm beloved of God, I can get out of bed today. Does that make sense? See, that is that part when we say, if everything else was stripped away, would Christ be enough for you? And if you believe that you're beloved, the answer becomes yes. And so first, understand this. You are loved by God. Now understand further that you're loved. Okay, you know who you are, and you're loved by God. So let's consider for a moment, what is the essence, or how does God's love look towards us? Well, the essence of God, this one who loves us, the essence of God is love. The essence of God is love. There are descriptors of God. God is merciful. God is just. God is this. But John really speaks to, and in three different places in his gospel and in his epistles, he writes of the essence of God. And he said, God is spirit by his very nature, by his very essence. He is spirit, John 4, 24. In 1 John 1, 15, he said, God is light. His very nature is light. He doesn't have as a quality light, but he is light. And then in verse 8 and verse 16 of this chapter, he said, God is love. John is not saying that love is a quality that God possesses. Rather, he is saying that love is the essence of God's divine being. It's not that God is a number of things 
And he has some love over here. It's saying that his very essence of who he is, is love. That from the eternal love relationship that existed before all time, that pre-existed anything else, was the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The love between the first person, the second person, and the third person of the Trinity. That that loving relationship was there, that essence was there, and that what we experience in this life is that essence flowing out and overflowing from that into creation itself. So understand, first and foremost, God is love. That's who is loving you, God himself. And that God's loving essence is a uniquely Christian truth. It's a uniquely Christian concept. Go and study any other world religion, and you will find at the heart of every other world religion is not a God who is at the heart, at his essence, love. If you were to study Buddhism, you would understand that you should be a loving person. But love is an action of the disciple. It's not a quality essence of the deity. If you were to look at Islam, Allah is said to have mercy. But Allah is never described in the Quran as being loving. It would be seen to a devout Muslim that to say God is love, Allah is love would be somehow demeaning of his deity. Only Christianity presents God as love, as his very essence as love. And so we see this loving God, loving us, and that he is all loving. And then tossed in here, the word isn't used, but tossed in is this idea that this all-loving God is also an all-holy God. That those two truths are held together by John. And John brings them together. These characteristics do not stand in opposition to one another, but they belong together and they determine God's actions. The all-loving, all-holy God comes together. And the way that we understand this and know this is that God says, I am all love and I sent my son into the world. To be a propitiation and a sacrifice for you because I'm also all holy. And in order for me to love you, I have to deal with my holiness. And so those have to come together. And so when you understand God, uh, you can't simply say, oh, God's all love. And, And have that in the modern concept. You see, the contemporary concept of a loving God, uh, of a God whose very essence is love, is that he cannot and he will not judge anyone for anything. Because the moment God is holy, he's no longer loving. They're mutually exclusive ideas within our modern world. If God is loving, and people want to say, oh, your God is a loving God, and Christians would say, yes, my God is a loving God. They would say, oh, well, then he can't in any way, shape, or form judge anybody for anything. God is love means that God is tolerant of all theological positions, all lifestyles, uh, all definitions of who he is. One writer put it this way, that is the God of the flower children fully blossomed. Well, God's just love, man. Okay, what does that mean? It means that anything goes, that I can act this way or that way, and God doesn't care because God's just love. And love just, it just has everything, and it's everything. And Christians are scolded for advocating a love and a moral constraint are necessarily bound together. 
You see, because we understand that Christian love has its limits, and those limits are set by God himself through his law. That God is coming and saying, I'm all loving and all holy, and I want you to live freely within this world, and here's how to live fully human life. Here's how to live the life you were designed to live. Here's how to live your created life. Have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't make for yourselves idols. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie. He says there is a way to love. You see, Christ's command to love is not a simplistic call to indiscriminate tolerance and an affirmation of all human expression and action. It can't be. Rather, love is a characteristic that finds its ultimate explanation in Christ's incarnation and in Christ's crucifixion. Listen to these words from John. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, 1 John three sixteen. Jesus has come in the flesh, verse 2 of chapter 4. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, verse 10 of, first, of verse 4. God's love is a holy love that cost his son Jesus something. It cost him his life in order to cover our sins This is part of that spiritual discernment that we're going to get to from the verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. Because love, true love, has to be held in contrast to what our culture would call sentimentality. Sentimentality is basically love without costliness. Love is costly. If you're a parent, has it been costly to love your children? Did it cost you something to love your children? And I'm not talking about the pocketbook or checkbook. We know that's costly. It costs you your heart. It costs you your affection. I I wrote to somebody this week as we were discussing uh, the difficulties of parenting. And I wrote and I said, parenting is not for the faint-hearted. It's not. Because to truly love our children, it costs us something. We are willing to lay down our lives for them. We are willing to sacrifice everything. And the hardest part of being a parent to me is the rejection of the love offered. Of somehow impugning my integrity of saying, you don't love me, you hate me because you won't let me stay out and do whatever. True love lets me do whatever I want to do. True love lets me look at anything I want to look at on my computer. True love doesn't make me keep a history on my text messages. True love lets me just close my door and you don't even get to come in. Oh, you're such a mean, unloving father because you think that it's your house and your car and your phone and your money and your food. Yeah, I do think that. And I think I'm incredibly loving because I'm sharing it with you. Because I love you. And my deepest and my, the depth of my hope for you is that you know how beloved you are. But my love has constraint. You don't just get to go do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, whenever you feel like doing it. And if that doesn't work in a human relationship, watch, by the way, parents, new parents coming along, it doesn't. How can we expect it to work in a heavenly relationship? The God who is all love says this, I love you so much that I'm willing to pursue you through my son, through the grave, and I'm willing to crush him in order to love you. 
Because I am all loving and I am all holy. And this all loving, all holy God looks at you and says, you're beloved. Not just because he felt like it, because it cost him something for him to call you a child of God. So I want you to hear this. You are loved. But understand who loves you and how they love you. It's important to discern that. So you are loved. We are loved. But then with that, we don't just sit with it. Hey, I'm loved. I got all the love in the universe. I'm beloved of my Father. That's awesome. I don't have to do anything else. I can hate other people. I can live however I want to live. I can do it. No. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. You love because he first loved you. And that if you don't love others, if you say that you have the love of God residing in you, yet you hate your brother, then you are a liar. He's saying there is a discerning point which says that if you are a a professed follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you hate others and are unloving towards others, John would say you are not backslidden per se. Uh, You aren't just a carnal Christian. He would say you're a liar. Because if you love Jesus and you have the love of God residing in you and you understand the Father's love for you, you become your essence is changed that you love other people. That you're drawn to them and they to you out of this incredibly supernatural, unnatural love that God has shown for you. And so that we love other people. And so here's a few things that we'll learn about this love that we have for other people. It's not just an indiscriminate love to love everything however we want to love it, but it is a love that has characteristics and definitions that John gives us here. Interesting, the first one is this. Christian love is orthodox. There's one you weren't expecting. Christian love is orthodox. That's verses 1 through 6. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. See whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come into the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, uh, that, that does not confess, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Little children, you are from God and overcome them. For we who, uh, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Interesting. If you believe that this is God's divinely inspired word and that it was put together by the inspiration of God's spirit working within the life of of John, you have to ask the question, why were these first, first six verses tossed right in the middle of his beginning avalanche on agape love? It's because he began in chapter 3, and he started to talk about love, and then he almost hit the brakes and went, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to make sure we're talking about the same love. I want to make sure that you have a discerning love. I want to make sure that the manner in which you love other people is orthodox. It is proper in its theological framework. It's proper in its theological expression of love. You see, 
The contextual point here is that he's bringing together is that orthodoxy and love are brought together. That right love flows from right theology. Right? So we're starting a systematic theology course on Sunday nights that we're going to teach to you. Guess how many of you are going to show up? Three, maybe. That'd be good. That's preacher talk right there. I'd go with one. No one, because who wants to study theology? Just give me Jesus. I just want Jesus, Bill. I want to go to a church that just gives me Jesus. And you get up there for 30 minutes and do something. Well, the only way that I understand to give Jesus is to give him theologically. And that is who he is, who God is, who we are in relation, what happened at the cross in that great transaction of the cross, what happens to us now in life through our sanctification. And so, Right love flows out of right theology. Christian love is orthodox in that it acknowledges two unique truths. Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We acknowledge those. Those are at the heart of our love for other people. That this Christ came, Jesus is the Son of God and He is the Savior of the world and He has now changed my life through the transaction of the cross and I am no longer my own but I am His and that I will love in the same manner that He loved which said to the woman who had multiple lovers and multiple husbands, go and sin no more. He didn't say, oh, that's fine. Keep trying until you find one. Whatever makes you happy. He said, no. He said, here's what your problem is. You don't know me. You don't understand who I am. He would say to others, he would challenge them. Say, I'm going to love you, but I'm not just going to love you. I'm going to love you through myself. And I am the epitome. I am the very essence of the law and the perfection of the law done on your behalf so that you are now freed to love one another. Interesting that when we present Jesus in the church, there is little care given to how we present him. That is the gravest danger within the church today in the world. If you're in the medical field, you spend probably more money on malpractice insurance than anything else. Why? Because if you make an error, it's deadly. You're going to get sued. You're going to be out of business. But sadly, there are no lawsuits against churches for giving theological error and malpractice. And it is much more damning and much more dangerous to present the wrong Jesus than it is the wrong medicine. The wrong medicine, you might lose your life. The wrong Jesus, you might lose your soul and your life. So it is incredibly important that we present the right Jesus. Who he is in the fullness of who he is. So we can't just say, I love Jesus. Which one? The one that the world presents to you as weak and masculated? As having no strength? Or the powerful king of the universe who was able to somehow be lion and lamb. Who was somehow willing to go to a cross and yet present it for you on on your behalf. The one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father above all rule and authority. Who's going to return one day and it won't be on a donkey. Coming in mildly into a city. But it will be on a stallion coming in to destroy all of those who stand in opposition to him. Which Jesus do you want me to give you? John would say a wrong view of Jesus is the plague of the church. And it's killing the church. And interesting, he wrote this in the first century. 
was a problem back then. And guess what? It's still a problem today. Many, many, many churches do not believe what we believe about Christ. That Christ is probably the best way to get to heaven, but he's not the only way. Or to say this, I was fascinated within recent um, elections and political elections that Christians termed evangelical Christians, which means I don't even use that word anymore. I try to use the word orthodox now to try to regain because evangelicalism has been lost within the political arena. Because when evangelical Christians say, hey, we are lining up with our Christian brothers and sisters in the Mormon church. We have redefined Christ. Christ is not a created being as he is within the Mormon church. It doesn't mean that Christians can't align with Mormons uh, within the political arena on different things and work together. It doesn't mean that Christians can't align with Muslims and work together within policy and polity to do things within the world. But do not say that there is the same Savior for, for those who are in Islam and in Mormonism and in Christianity. They're different Jesuses. Does that make sense? And it's not hateful for you to say that. It's loving for me to say to you, you should take this medicine, not that medicine. Because if you take that medicine, it will kill you. But if you take Christ, exclusively Christ, it will save you. And his love will be the love that you show to other people. So know him in that way. Right belief and right conduct have been joined together by God. So folks, take seriously your love for others. That first and foremost, Christian love is orthodox. Secondly, Christian love is active. Christian love is active. It's not passive. Christian love is not just uh, to be heard, but it extends through our hands. The quote from John Calvin in the beginning uh, says this, that righteousness is not just hidden in our hearts, uh, but it comes out through our hands, through our feet, through our mouths, through our eyes. We live it out actively. That's why within our church, when we said that the hallmarks of our church and our mission statement, the fourth one isn't fourth because it's the last of importance. It's fourth because it's the one that is and derived out of the other three, is that we serve the needs of other people. That Christian love is an active love. Christian love doesn't just sit, as James was wrestling with when he was writing to the church in the first century, that people would say they'd see somebody who was hungry and see somebody who was needy, somebody who needed financial help. God warm you. God bless you. Love of God be with you. Dan Doriani, the, who is at Covenant Theological Seminary, the theologian and pastor, wrote, that's like saying to the person who is in need, I hope you find help because it's surely not coming from me. That can't be Christ in us. Christ is drawn to the brokenhearted. Christ is drawn to the ones who are in need. Christian love is, on one end, self-sacrifice, and he speaks in here of even giving your life for another. That once-in-a-lifetime sacrifice of one, one's own life. And people go, oh, I don't know if I could do that. Okay, well, hold that. Can you at least do Christian love as compassion? And compassion being that practical every day of our life concern, consideration, and care for others. Before you go to the extreme of I give my life for somebody else, 
Are you willing to just day to day have compassion on others? That if you see a need and you're moved, that so God talk about God's love without looking out for the physical and the financial and the emotional need of our brothers and sisters is empty and it's wasted talk. You see, in this way of Christian church serving the needs of others. Now, interestingly, John is talking about within the context of the church mainly. Love the brethren. Love one another well. That's why we want to serve the needs of one another here. That's why he says care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the needs of the people within the church. Look to those needs. And many people go, how can I find the needs of the church? Let me give you a really simple one. It was on the screen here a little while ago. We need people to help in the nursery. You want to show the love of God to people who have need? Go hold a baby for us. Oh, but Bill, I want to do something significant. Okay, go humble yourself and your ego and your pride and go into the nursery and serve somebody who's not going to give anything back to you. That's what it's about. It's Christian love uh, in action. Uh, It is this active Christian love that expects nothing in return. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we have a southern version of Christian love in action. And the southern version of Christian love in action is this. Hey, I made you a pie and I gave you a pie out of the goodness of my heart. And you didn't send me a thank you note. I'm not sending you another pie. Ungrateful person. I didn't know the pie had strings attached. Oh my goodness. But isn't that how we think? I'll do something, but you have to reciprocate something back to me. Christian love in action is actually expecting nothing back in return. It's saying, I'm going to love, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to do this to you. Now, it would be nice if you wrote a thank you note to someone. It would be nice if you extended a, a, a thanks. But, you don't, but if you don't, our love isn't motivated by what we receive in return. That's humanism. Christian love is a sacrificial love that's in action giving in that way. And then finally this. Christian love is not just orthodox. And it's not just love in action. It's also Christian love is assuring. Francis Schaeffer wrote this. He said, love between true Christians is the final apologetic within the world. And what he meant by that was the love shown between Christians and by Christians was the best way for the world to recognize the reality of Christianity. That the world is looking at us, folks. The world is looking at how we love one another, how we engage the life of one another. I was talking to somebody recently who had a child who is really wrestling uh, with things, a, a child who is making some bad decisions as a young adult. And I asked, I said, so how is your community that you've been involved with for so long, how is that community uh, of faith that you're a part of, how are they coming around you? And she says, they don't really talk to me anymore because they're worried that I'm gonna, my kids are going to influence theirs. What kind of apologetic is that making to the world? If I'm a non-believer and I saw and heard that, I would say, I can be rejected anywhere. Why would I want to come into the church and be rejected? That you mean that when I go through the difficulties of life and I have a rebellious child, you mean that when I go through the difficulties of life and my loved one, my, my husband, my wife leaves me in divorce, has an affair, when I go into the church and I'm caught up in addiction to pornography or to drugs or to alcohol, you mean the church is going to step back from me? Your Jesus isn't real. I don't want your Jesus. Folks, the church has to be drawn to one another. 
in love and to care for the needs of one another in a way that the world looks and goes, that's awesome and that's amazing that you called a spade a spade, you called sin sin, but you still stayed engaged unless biblically warranted otherwise. There are some biblical warrants, but most of the time we just step back and Christ would have stepped in. And so there's an assurance that comes to the world around us, but there's also an assurance within us. And the assurance within us is this. People come and they ask me regularly, Bill, how do I know? How can I have assurance that I'm saved? And I would ask, have you given your life to Christ? Have you accepted him as your salvation based on his merit alone and not your own? Have you placed your faith wholly in him and not on yourself in any other way? Yes, I have. Good. Are you a loving person? Do you love other people well? Do you serve the needs of other people? Well, my faith is private. I, I'm, I don't serve other people. They need to get a job. They need to get off of welfare. They need to do these things. Uh, what do you mean you want me? Hmm. John would say, be careful. Because to claim that you love Jesus, but yet you do not love someone else, you don't have an assurance. But when those two come together, when he says, I have a profound love for Christ and I believe in Christ, the biblical Christ, and accepted him as my Savior, and it begins to work its way out through me that I am trying and loving other people. I am doing that, that people are drawn to me, that I'm drawn to them. Then there is an assurance is what he says. Then he says, it casts out all fear. We so wrongly use this passage of Scripture. Perfect love casts out all fear. You know the first time I heard that? When I was facing a bully in fifth grade. And Mel was big. And he would take needles and he would put them into his fingers and he would slap you on the back. And he would slap you on the thigh. And he would stab you with needles all around. And I remember someone in my church, a Sunday school teacher said, Billy, perfect love casts out all fears. You can stand up to him. I was like, you're, even as a fifth grader, I was discerning enough to go, you're nuts. That's not what it's talking about. The perfect love of Christ will not get rid of all of your phobias. You still may be afraid of snakes and heights and afraid of high speeds and all of that. What this is saying is the perfect love of Christ worked out in you so that you believe it and it works its way out and you see it in your life and serving others takes away of your fear of judgment. That you can stand confidently and go, I'm assured that when I look at Christ, I can present to him my life and my full testimony, as imperfect as it is, but I can say, I confessed you before men, and I lived it out the best that I could. And he'll go, well done. We'll end here. That's easy, right? Because loving kids is easy, huh? Loving a spouse is easy. Loving other people is easy. No, of course it's not. That's why, interesting, right in the middle of 1 John 4 and all throughout John, he says, here's the key to it. The Spirit of God has been implanted in you. You have the Spirit of God in you to help you, to empower you, and to give you the desire and the strength to do this great work. So here's what I'd love for our church. I'd love for our church to be known as a church that loves Christ and understands who He is. That means we know His Word, that we understand Him and who He is in contradiction to who He is presented as within the world around us. 
And then that we take that love that we have from Christ, from our Father, through Christ, given to us by the Spirit, and that we love each other well. That we're drawn to each other, not repelled by one another. I've told you before, it's the flinch rule, at least in my world, that if you come to me and you say something to me and you share your heart with me and I go, ooh, you'll never come to me again. Don't flinch. Listen, pray constantly. Spirit, give me the ability to love this person. Give me the ability to serve this person's needs. Give me the ability here. I've got to do it because everything in me wants to flinch, and I don't want to flinch. I want to be drawn towards them. I want them to see the love of Christ in me, that we draw towards one another, and we love each other well. It is the greatest and the final apologetic, and in that is when our neighbors will be drawn to Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Beloved, of God. Love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of your spirit in us. And we pray that we would be reminded that we are loved by you, the objects of your affection, and that we have now that spirit in us, the spirit of sonship, the spirit of sons and daughters in us as your Holy Spirit, and that as we live it out, we would be loving towards one another serving, caring for one another. Not indiscriminately, without truth, but love and truth brought together perfectly in tension and balance. Father, forgive us when we haven't loved you the way that we ought and loved one another in the way that we have been commanded. We praise you today and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.